0: All right, well, let's uh, open up with a brief word of prayer here, and then we'll get into the lesson this morning. Oh, God, we thank you um, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that we have uh, freedom in this country to come together and to worship you and to hear your word taught and to hear your word preached. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue uh, to bless us with that freedom and that we would uh, continue to have joy as we come together to study your word. Lord, we pray that you'd give us clear minds and that you'd give us faithful hearts and that as we look at your word today, um, we would be filled with it and that we would learn to love you more and to praise you better. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we are continuing our series on baptism this morning. We've got this week and one week left on baptism. So. You may have thought I never would stop talking about it since we've been on it for so long, but we are going to get to the end here, and we're very close. And today, uh, we want to continue looking at baptism by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in the theological section of the doctrine of baptism right now, so we have uh, four weeks on that. This is week three out of the four. You'll remember that... Um, the first one, we looked at the substance of baptism just before Christmas, as well as the mode of baptism, um, and today we're going to look at the efficacy of baptism. We're going to look at uh, what baptism actually does uh, from Scripture, right? So what does Scripture tell us about what baptism actually does, the efficacy of it? And we're going to see some important things today, uh, right from the words of the Apostle Peter. And... Uh, There are a few passages in Scripture, I think, that give us such a helpful understanding of baptism as 1 Peter 3. But uh, this is also a very misunderstood passage and in some ways sort of a difficult passage. And so I'm excited to look at it with you here because uh, this is a passage that comes up a lot in discussions about the doctrine of baptism. So we want to continue looking at baptism through the lens of what Peter has to say to us this morning. Uh, the verse that I'm um, interested in looking at today is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. But I'm going to be starting at verse 13, just to give some context of the passage here. So let me go ahead and read that for us. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. So just to give you some context before I start reading, Peter, of course, here, is, he's writing this epistle to a group of Christians that is uh, undergoing a great deal of suffering. Uh, We don't know a lot about the suffering that they're actually going through, but he is writing to encourage them. And uh, this is his encouragement that he gives to them. So starting with verse 13 of chapter three. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As you can see, uh, there's a lot of stuff in this passage, and we don't have time to talk about All of it, at least of which is the stuff about the spirits in prison and Jesus preaching to them and so on. That's a whole uh, topic for another day. We're not going to look at that this morning. Like I said, I want to focus on verse 21 because you'll notice what Peter says. uh, Some pretty bold words. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. As you can imagine, this is a a classical proof text for a number of Christian traditions where they want to see a regenerative view of baptism. And so what they want to do is they want to use this verse and they want to say, see, Peter says here that baptism plays a role in salvation. And particularly what they mean is that baptism plays a role in salvation in that it plays a role in justification. They want to say, see... Here, Peter says explicitly, baptism is a part of your salvation. Baptism is a part of your justification. You can't ignore that. You Reform people are trying to dance around scripture when you say that baptism doesn't save you. In fact, it actually says right here, baptism saves you. And you can see why this is an important verse that we want to look at, right? Because we don't want to just defend our own theology if it's against scripture right we want to understand what the bible actually says because that's what we're trying to do here we want to understand the word of god and conform our minds to that okay so we want to look at this passage this morning and see what we can learn about the efficacy of baptism is it does it save us and if it does how does it save us is it part of justification those are some of the questions we want to look at here so just by way of context as we start to look at this passage just notice a couple of things okay as I mentioned a moment ago, Peter has written this epistle, 1 Peter, right, to a group of believers who are experiencing a great deal of suffering. And we don't know you know, the great context about this suffering. We don't know everything there is to know about what they were going through. We can uh, theorize and imagine maybe it's government persecution. Maybe they're getting persecuted by Jews. Uh, we don't know uh, what's exactly going on here. But they're suffering nonetheless. Right? And Peter is writing this epistle to give uh, assurance of salvation and to give comfort to his readers, right? to comfort them in the fact that they're not believing a lie. They actually are believing the truth and they need to continue suffering for Christ's sake. Okay? So he exhorts his readers in, in verses 13 and following uh, to godly character and behavior. Right? So he's saying, you know, suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Don't fear them, don't be troubled. Honor Christ as holy. Be prepared to make a defense, all those kinds of things. And then when he wants to give reason, this is in verse 18, right? He, he gives them all this exhortation as to, you know, be, behave like Christians, you know, live like Christians, suffer for Christ's sake. In verse 18, he answers, why should they do that? Why should you continue to suffer for Christ's sake? And in verse 18 and following, he gives two primary reasons why his readers should continue to suffer for Christ's sake, okay? The first reason that he gives is the gospel. See, right away he says, for Christ also suffered for your sins. So he explains the word of God, right? He gives them the gospel. So his his first sort of assurance for these believers is to give them the word of God. And then he has another assurance that he gives them. And that is baptism in verse 21. So you see what Peter's doing here to give assurance of salvation to his readers. He gives them the word and he gives them the sacrament. See, word and sacrament are held tight together here, and they are given to provide assurance for salvation. And so Peter's argument here is structured in that way. He wants to provide assurance for them. And so he gives them the gospel and then he gives them the sacrament, baptism. Now, it's at this point, then, as he introduces the sacrament of baptism to provide assurance for suffering believers, that we get this bold phrase in verse 21 baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. And so I want to break down what Peter's saying here in verse 21 baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to break this statement down for us so we can understand what he's saying. Um, Firstly, at the very beginning of verse 21, notice that word there, baptism. Now you remember that earlier in this series when we had a session on the baptism of the Holy Spirit which is regeneration, right, the Holy Spirit being poured into the heart of an unbeliever, bringing them to faith in Christ, making them new, etc. Uh, we saw that baptism of the Holy Spirit is often what the apostles have in view when they simply use the word baptism. Right? In Galatians 3, right, this is uh, one of the texts that we looked at, where Paul talks about as many of you have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ. And in the context of the book of Galatians, it makes perfect sense to see what Paul's talking about there not as water baptism, but rather as spirit baptism. So baptism of the spirit, the baptism that John prophesied about Jesus and so on. So baptism of the spirit is sometimes what the apostles have in view when they talk about baptism. And okay? we don't just say when, a, when baptism shows up in the text, hey, they're talking about spirit baptism because it fits our theology. Some might accuse us of that. But no, we're doing that because we think the context warrants it. Paul in, the, in Galatians is all about the Holy Spirit. He's got a thorough, rich understanding of the Spirit. He's bringing in stuff from Isaiah about the outpouring of the Spirit. It's all there. It makes great sense. There are other passages, though, when the apostles speak about baptism where they don't just have a spirit baptism in view. But where they do actually have water baptism in view. And the way we can discern that, whether they're talking about spirit baptism or water baptism, is by the context. Notice the context here in verse 21 baptism which corresponds to this. What's the this? What's he talking about? What is baptism corresponding to? What's that? The flood, right. So we have a water context in view here. And not only is it just the, the flood here, but it's actually the very word water at the end of verse 20. And in the Greek, the pronoun this and the word water correspond in gender and number. So it, it makes some sense in the Greek syntax here. So what Peter's saying is baptism corresponds to the water of Noah's flood. And if you were to take a look at the Greek, which I'm sure you all do on occasion, you know, uh, you would notice that in verse 21, it says, bap- literally in the Greek, it says, baptism as an antitype of this. Baptism as an antitype of this. And I'm sure that you are familiar, like if you're listening very carefully to the, the sermons that are preached here and so on, and especially to the Esther series that I'm doing um, for the sermons, you'll notice that I talk about typology a lot, or that Robert will talk about typology, or Adam used to talk about typology a lot. We talk about David being a type of Christ, or Esther being a type of Christ. And what we mean by that is that Esther or David or whatever biblical character we're thinking of, basically that their life is patterned in a similar way to the pattern of the life of Jesus. All right, so... You know, Esther comes up and she she's willing to give her life in front of an authority who's bringing judgment in order to save her people. You know, that's very similar to what Jesus does. And so we talk about Esther being a type of Christ. Peter's doing that same kind of typological work here. He's seeing that there's a pattern. And the pattern is Noah's flood is acting in a similar way to baptism. And you think about it, it makes some sense, right? God sent the waters of Noah's flood to come down and to bear up Noah and his family, to save them, if you will. And those same waters of Noah's flood not only saved Noah and his family, but those waters also destroyed all the wicked. So simultaneously, the waters saved Noah and his family and destroyed the wicked. They brought salvation and they brought judgment, right? That's what Peter's saying. Baptism as a type right, or anti-type. So the flood waters of Noah are a type of baptism. And just like the waters came and saved Noah and his family, so Peter's saying there's a certain sense in which baptism functions in this way to save you. So that's really important to catch, first of all. The baptism that Peter's talking about here is water baptism. And he's saying it is a similar phenomena as Noah's flood. Okay, now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now let's look at that word saves, okay? you see that in your English text. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That word salvation there, or to save, right? Whenever we think of that word today, just as you know, 21st century Americans, we tend to think about that word almost exclusively with respect to justification. Right? I hear people all the time talking about we are saved by faith. And that's absolutely true. right? We can say that. We're saved by faith. But strictly speaking, in terms of, just, in terms of uh, theology and, and strict theological categories, a better way to say it is we are justified by By faith. Justification is by faith. And that's what we mean when we say we're saved by faith. We're saying we're justified by faith. And justification is a part of salvation. And so it's perfectly fine to talk like that. But salvation itself is a bigger concept than just justification. Salvation encompasses a whole lot of other pieces. In theology, we call this the... Ordo Salutis. In fact, Robert was talking about this just before Christmas in an evening sermon. The Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. And in the order of salvation, there are a whole bunch of pieces. We have predestination, election, effectual calling, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. And you could maybe even add a few more things in there, right? There's a lot of pieces to this concept that we call salvation. And when we use the word salvation, we normally are thinking about justification, but we have to remember it inc- that salvation encompasses more pieces than just that. In fact, the biblical authors actually understand this, and the biblical authors use the word salvation in different ways to talk about different parts of the bigger picture of salvation. So, for example, in Romans, when Paul talks about salvation or being saved, normally he's got justification in view because Romans is all about justification. Just look at chapter 3. It's all about that, being declared righteous before God. But there are other places in Scripture where the word salvation is not used to refer to justification. For example, you go to Philippians chapter 2. And there, Paul says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Is he talking about justification there? I mean, I hope not. That would contradict him in Romans, right? Because in Romans, he says justification is by faith. Well, in Philippians, is he now saying justification is by works? No, of course not. Rather, he's using the term salvation not to refer to justification. But rather, he's using the term salvation to refer to sanctification. Because justification does not involve our works at all. Justification is on the basis of the work of Christ alone. Sanctification, on the other hand, is through the Holy Spirit, our works. It's synergistic. It's where we are working together with the Holy Spirit. We're not robots in sanctification, we are working with the Spirit to conform to the image of Christ and pursue holiness. Okay? So there, Paul's using salvation, that word, to refer to sanctification. And so that shows us right away then that this term salvation does not always have justification in view. It might have other things, sanctification being one of them, Okay. Now, getting back to 1st Peter here. I think that here in 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 21, when Peter says baptism now saves you, he's saying baptism plays a role in your salvation. But Peter is not saying baptism plays a role in your justification. Rather, what he's saying is baptism plays a role in your sanctification. Which is what we've been saying this whole time, actually, in this series. Baptism plays a role in your sanctification. That's how it plays a role in your salvation. Because sanctification is part of salvation. So there's nothing strange or weird about how Peter's using this term. He's using it ordinarily and plainly. Now, when I say that, that baptism here saves you in the sense that it's part of your sanctification, I'm not... Saying that just because I want to say that, or because I think that that's what it should say, and so I'm manipulating the text and and whatever. No, I'm saying that for two reasons, okay? Two major reasons, and these are actually the two reasons that Peter gives in this text. You'll notice he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, comma, and now he gives two statements, and both of these statements are clarifications. The first one is a negative clarification. And the second one is positive. So lest anyone misunderstand what he's saying when he says baptism now saves you, he makes it abundantly clear what he's talking about. Firstly, the first clarification. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. And then secondly, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, first thing. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay? I'm, the, the translation is great there. Right? It's exactly what the, what the Greek says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. But remember that in, in uh, the New Testament, the idea for dirt and the idea for body are more than just physical. Right? Paul often uses those terms to refer to spiritual realities. And in fact, if you were to look up these Greek words here, the word for, for filth or for dirt there is used in all except one instance to refer to sin, to refer to uncleanness or sin that pollutes the human nature. So Peter's saying here, he's not saying, baptism now saves you, not as if it just removes dirt from the body. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, baptism now saves you, not as though baptism removes sin from the flesh. You see that? He's saying baptism does not remove sin from the flesh, right? It's not forgiving your sins as if you just dunk water on somebody and then suddenly their sins are forgiven. Now, Peter's already said their sins were forgiven by Christ on the cross in verse 18. Now, what he's saying here is baptism saves you. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying baptism just mechanically washes away your sin and you don't need Jesus on the cross and you don't need faith or anything like that. I'm not saying baptism just washes away your sin. So that's his negative clarification there. It's not not justifying you. It's not declaring you righteous before God by removing your sin. No, actually what it's doing is this. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when he talks about good conscience or conscience here, um, I looked up this idea in scripture and studied every verse where this term conscience shows up and it's kind of fascinating actually Uh, it shows up 29 times in the new testament and most of the time paul uses this paul uses this term to refer to uh his discussions about meat sacrificed to idols and he talks about not violating conscience by eating meat that's sacrificed to idols and so on it's the sensitive topics of, of christian living Sensitive topics about understanding the will of God and obeying God and, and um, seeking to be more like Christ. And this, uh, in 1 um, Timothy chapter 1, Paul explains that Christians, uh, they need faith and a, quote, good conscience, lest they make shipwreck of their faith. And so what Paul's saying is you've got faith, And then you've got this concept of a good conscience. And in the context, when Paul's talking about the good conscience, it's the ability to discern right and wrong, the ability to discern the will of God, the ability essentially to live a holy life. And this term shows up a number of other places in Hebrews chapter 13, as well as earlier here in verse 16 of 1 Peter 3, where he says that his readers need to pursue having a good conscience. And so all of this to say, there's a lot more details that I could bring in here, but all of this to say, the concept of a good conscience is not faith and it's not uh, regeneration. The concept of a good conscience in the New Testament is something that is for believers. And it's the ability to discern right and wrong, to know the will of God and to live a holy life. What does that sound like? This sounds like a sanctification concept, doesn't it? In fact, I won't make you turn here, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, let me read those verses for you here and listen to the author of Hebrews as he describes the same thing Peter's describing here. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's here's where you need to listen. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now notice what, what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's got baptism in his mind here, talking about washing with water, talking about sprinkling and so on. And what he says is that in order to come forth and receive a true heart in full assurance of faith, you receive baptism in order to cleanse yourself from an evil conscience. So there is a tight connection here between a good conscience and assurance of salvation. And so now you come back here to 1 Peter 3 and you see what Peter's talking about here is It's the context actually with what he's arguing for his people. He's trying to convince his readers that they should be assured of their salvation. How can they be assured? First, he gives them the word, he gives them the gospel. Second, he gives them the sacrament, baptism. He says, Baptism plays a role in your salvation, not because it forgives your sins or because it washes them away or because it does these things, but rather because it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. What's the good conscience? The good conscience is the ability to discern the will of God, to live according to his law, to be assured of your salvation, to be seeking sanctification, to be growing in sanctification, to be growing in your knowledge of God. So that that little voice in your head is not misleading you or so that it's not seared by sin or by false beliefs, but rather that that conscience would be molded according to the promises of God. So that in baptism, when, when the Holy Spirit seals the promises of God on your heart, that that impacts the way that you think. So that your very conscience is telling you that the promises of God are true. And in that, you can have full persuasion and assurance that you really are saved by the blood of Christ. You see, that's what Peter's after here. That's what he's trying to say. He's not trying to teach regenerative baptism. A little bit of looking around in the whole of the New Testament, looking at the concepts that he's bringing up, shows us here. He's got sanctification in mind. He's got looking for the assurance of salvation and trust in the promises of God in view here, And that's how it plays a role in salvation. In fact, there's a certain sense in which you can say that baptism plays a role not only in sanctification... But it actually plays a significant role in our perseverance, in God's preserving us in the faith. As Calvin said, right, we look back to our baptism and we see there the visible word of God that as surely as that water has been sprinkled over us, so the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on the mercy seat of Calvary to atone for our sins and open the gateway for us into heaven To be with him forever. If you want assurance of salvation. According to Peter. You need the word. And you need the sacraments. And we're going to partake of one of those sacraments today. Not baptism but of the Lord's Supper. During the service. And so I hope you'll be thinking about that. Because this same sort of stuff applies to the Lord's Supper as well. Which we're going to see in future weeks when we look at that sacrament. All right, we're out of time this morning. Uh, are there any brief questions before I close this in prayer Here. All right, well, if not, then let me close this here. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for um, the exhortation of your apostle here in this passage, Lord. We, uh, if we are struggling with suffering in this world, or if we're struggling with assurance of our salvation, we don't know for sure whether you're there or whether you hear us or whether Christ really did do what what he says he did or what his apostles said he did. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to the very places that Peter brings us. Lord, draw us when we are lacking in assurance when we are lacking in faith when we're suffering. Draw us to your word and to your sacraments. We need them, God. We need them. Help us to understand them better so that they might be more effectual to help us. Lord, help us to, to trust you and work in us a stronger faith in your promises as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning in our worship. We pray, Lord, also that you would bless the preaching of your word and that you would prepare our hearts and minds to praise you and to come before you in humility this morning. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.